Um, good morning. Thanks, ladies. That was great. Uh, this morning, well, you know what? We've been going through this series on uh, grace. And if you recall, when we first got started, I stated that, you know what? We're going to find that it really is amazing as you consider what God has to say about grace and the things that are accomplished through His grace. And I think that we've discovered that and a whole bunch more. And uh, as we're concluding it, this week and next week will be the last week, but as we conclude this particular series, not only is God's grace truly amazing, but it also is accepting as well. And uh, what I mean by that is, is that we need to accept God's grace as well as distribute it. And uh, let me explain. When, when you begin to understand and uh, demonstrate the kind of grace that I've described all throughout this series. God's grace encourages us to forgive other people. God's grace encourages us to, uh, to reassure others or affirm others, to accept others as they are despite the differences that we have with one another. God's grace encourages us that we can disagree with one another and still do it in an agreeable way. And all those things are true of God's grace. But what's also important to understand is that we need to ex be accepting of His grace as well. And what I mean is that if someone demonstrates graciousness to you, you have to be in a position where you're willing to accept it. Now that sounds easy, but it really isn't if you think about it. It kind of rubs cross-grain of everything that we've ever learned and all the independence and the, the, the uh, vulnerability that we try to stay away from is that when someone does something nice for us, and I'll give you an illustration. How, how do you respond when someone does something for you that's undeserved, that's unexpected, that kind of comes out of the blue? How do you respond to that? Are you, are you readily willing to accept it, or is there some hesitancy on your part? I'll give you an illustration. We, we have uh, season tickets for Angel Game that we share with some of our friends, and uh, the, there's a uh, younger couple that sits next to us, and the first time that we met him, we just had a kind of casual conversation, whatever, and, and uh, one day the gal looked over at me and she says, are you hungry? And I went, I, I don't know, why? Well, we got some pizza and we can't eat it all, you want some pizza? And, uh, and Ryan, our son was with us and the obvious answer was, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, well, sure. And so they gave us some pizza. Anyway, so they give us the pizza, and he enjoys it. And, and uh, a couple games later, we come in, and they come walking in. They got those cinnamon rolls and all this kind of stuff. And, and I see her sit down, and I say, well, where's the pizza? <laughs> and, you know, we've been, we've been waiting here. We've been holding out. I haven't sent them to get anything to eat yet. We've been holding out, waiting for you to show up with the pizza. And she kind of laughed about it. And about 30 minutes later, her husband finally shows up, and he's got a huge box of pizza. And so not only we get pizza, but they gave cinnamon rolls as well. But now, I don't know how you would respond to that, but my first response is, now what are we going to do for them? You know, have you, have you, can you relate to that? It's like, okay, that was nice that they did that, but now we owe them something. And you go back and forth all the time, well, let me do this. No, oh, now you did that, great, now we got to do this. This is great. Is this never going to end? Would you stop being nice to us? Because I feel like I owe you, right? It's like, well, they invite us to dinner. First thing you say is, we have to have them over sometime. Well, when are you going to do it? Well, I don't know, but now this thing, this big cloud is hanging over our head. We've got to have these people over for dinner. We, they've invited us. We haven't had them back. And it's like, and on and on it goes. And uh, we have been in a position, being involved with a lot of people, and in particular having a, a wife who likes to give to people, for whatever reason, it's amazing. I mean, we can walk and she'll see something, she'll go, oh, that'd be perfect for so-and-so. 
It's like, we haven't seen so-and-so in eight months. Yeah, but I was just thinking of them, and that would be perfect to send to them for their little baby or whatever. It's like, and, and she just thinks that way, and she sees things like that that I don't see. And uh, so she just says, give me the money. And, and that's my part. So that's my part in how we do these things together. So it's like, okay, well, we're, we're a team here. Okay, here we go. <laughs> but it's really funny, too, because it's like everyone's going over to Aunt Linda's house, and we're getting in Aunt Linda's car. And when it's Aunt Linda this and Linda that and Miss Linda this and Miss Linda that, and it's like, eh, 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 eh. remember me? I mean, it's like, oh, no, okay, whatever. So, so you do that for people, and the first thing they look at you like is, why did you do that? Well, because we wanted to. But why? What do you mean, why? Because we just wanted to do that. And then they go, well, we don't know what to say. And so we have to teach them what to say. It's an interesting process. But you just go like this. Say thank you. And they go, thank you. And then I say, welcome. And that's it. But then they walk away going, what's going on? See, that's the kind of world we live in today. See, and, and the problem with that is, is that we really have never learned, any of us, how to be accepting of grace. See, when God does something for us, God's up to something. What does he want? Oh, man. What is he going to ask me to do? Which direction is this heading? We're going to have to have him over for dinner sometime. <laughs> You know, and so as we go through all this, you know, I want, I want us to understand that grace is amazing, but also it requires us to accept it as well. And accepting grace is something that we have to learn to do. And many of us are very resistant when it comes to others trying to share something with us, whether it's God or another person. How do you handle that? See, the, the, the wisdom that we learn here is, is it's good stuff. The truth is always good stuff. But what I have found is, is that the application is where we run into the problem. How do we apply what we learn? I like the story that I heard about two good old boys that are out, for, they're out hunting, and they hit the jackpot, they shoot, and they kill an 11-point buck. And so they go over, and they get this buck, and they start dragging it through the underbrush and the thick, and it's really thick, and they're grabbing it by its legs, and its antlers keep getting hung up in the brush. And finally, they come across the hunters. They're heading back toward the truck, and another man, he just kind of gives them some unsolicited advice. He says, hey, uh, you know, if, if you pick it up by the antlers and drag it through the brush, it won't get caught on the brush like it does with the other way. And so they were, you know, they thought, well, that's, there's a lot of wisdom in that. And so they, they, they put the, the legs down, they walk across, they grab the antlers, they start walking with it, and sure enough, thing's not getting caught in any of the brush. And the one good old boy looks at the other and goes, man, you know what, that guy was pretty smart. The other guy looks at him and says, yeah, but you know what, I don't know how smart it was. We keep getting further and further away from the truck. This is where I pause for effect because half of you aren't even awake yet. It's like, I don't understand. I don't get it. Man. It's funny. Well, it was funny, wasn't it? I thought it was funny. I thought it was a funny story. I thought it was hilarious. There's a knee slapper, back slap. Well, the only reason why it's funny is because you didn't get it yet. So somebody explain to them a little bit later. Anyway, the problem is application, right? So here it is. This is what we need to understand. What we're going to learn is true, and there's a lot of wisdom in it. Now it's time that we learn how to apply it in the proper way. Now, throughout this series, I've, I've been wanting to address some things that are concerned to me as we talk about grace. 
And for those of us who are, are those who like to pursue excellence, we're not comfortable with mediocrity, you know, we're looking to develop our character and, and we really want to do better in our life for whatever that definition is. There's some flip sides to this that really cause a problem as far as grace is concerned. And I figure it ties in with what we're going to discuss this morning. So I want to go ahead and take a minute to kind of give you four dangers that cause grace to be prevented and not to be promoted and see if you agree with me as we take a look at them. One of the problems that you have is if you're a type of person who pursues excellence and you're the type of person that's on a kind of a war path against mediocrity and you want to develop your character and you want to do better in your life, whatever the definition that you have in your own life, you know, you're against laziness and incompetence and all these things, I need to warn you that this is going to be true of your life. It's going to be true that it's easy to develop an attitude of intolerance towards other people. An attitude of intolerance. Stop and think about this for a minute. You could very easily begin to become intolerant toward people who you feel aren't on the same quest as you are. And if you do, you will destroy grace and you won't promote it. Stop and think about this. I'll give you some illustrations. Stupid ones, but they may apply. Let's just take, for example, that you're a mom who likes to have your carpet vacuumed a certain way. You like the lines to be lining up. You know, you like it to look like Anaheim Stadium, the infield at the Angel game. You got the lines coming this way and that way, and you kind of got them this way and this way. And you've got some children that you're trying to teach to become, well, let's just say to become a little more respecting of the house and the environment and to clean up after themselves. And so they're going to get out and they're going to start vacuuming the rug. Now, I did not think it was humanly possible to not vacuum carpet correctly. You know what I'm saying? But I have learned through experience that there is a certain way that the carpet has to be vacuumed. Not just in our house, but in the home of other friends that we have. You know, we've got one friend who actually rakes it, too. It's like, you know, but they don't have a roof on, so there's a lot of leaves and stuff. now. But, but there's a certain way to do it. Now, you think, well, wait a minute, how can you not vacuum the carpet right? Well, let me tell you something. If you're a type of person that likes things done a certain way, you could actually not vacuum the carpet right. Now, you may be a dad who's trying to teach your children how to wash the car. And there's only one way to wash the car. And which way is that? The right way. And which way is the right way? My way. See how that is? It kind of falls hand in hand. And so what happens is we become very intolerant toward people who do things differently than we do things. Because in our mind, there's only one way to do things. And that's the right way. And it just so happens the way that we do it is always the right way. Isn't that a fascinating thing? And so we become intolerant toward others as if somehow you can't vacuum a carpet several different ways or wash a car several different ways or cut the grass several different ways or pull weeds several different ways. And see, and we've got to be very careful if we're the kind of people who demand perfection that we don't destroy the people around us because if they feel they don't measure up, they feel they're a failure. And when I'm out on a project or whatever and we've got people who work for us, I've got to be very careful to recognize there's a whole bunch of ways that a job can get done and still do it in an acceptable manner that not only pleases our customers but also would please me or, or, or my partner or whatever. So we've got to be very careful when we're dealing with other people not to destroy them but to promote grace by allowing them to do things in a way that they want to do it but still gets the end result. You follow me? 
This is really critical that we understand these things because these are the things that destroy and not promote grace. They're grace killers. The second thing is, is that we can tend to become impatient and very judgmental. And it kind of goes hand in hand, doesn't it? Oh, get you fucking the carpet right. And we become very judgmental or impatient. Now, that's not a way to wash the car. Look, at what are you doing? Look, it's getting all spotted. You need to do this. You need to move faster. You need to do that or the other things or whatever. Now, where did you learn to cut the grass like that? And meanwhile, your son's thinking, well, not from you, from our gardeners. <laughs> no. But uh, you can tend to be impatient and very judgmental. And it's important that we understand. Let me give you an illustration of something that, that I see in, our, in the 90s, you know, our culture that we live in. Let's just take a person that's very interested in staying in good physical shape. They like to exercise. They eat the right food. They don't eat a lot of it. They, they know how to maintain the quantities that they should eat and the, and the nutritional value and the fat content. And they read the labels and it takes them 47 days to just go through a shopping list in the store. They've been there for a week because they're reading all the labels. And, and it's like, you know, and they can become kind of impatient and judgmental toward people who aren't as crazy about what they look like as they are. So you got, you know, you got Mr. Atlas and you got Wonder Woman. They're both like the pump iron and they're both in great shape. And then they look across the room and they see, you know, you know people that, you know, major in Dunkin' Donuts. And, uh, you know, and they just like they're overweight. And, and frankly, to at Mr. Atlas and Wonder Woman, those people are slobs. That's the way it is. And they become very intolerant and they become very judgmental and they look at the other person as, you know what, don't they recognize how important it is to be in good shape? Don't they understand what they're doing to their body? Don't they recognize, you know, how heavy they're going to be for the pallbearers to carry them? I mean, don't they understand these things? I mean, they are just so inconsiderate, you know, and, and, uh, and so they're impatient and they're judgmental. And, and what's interesting is that, you know, a lot of friction develops in a relationship over areas like that. And it doesn't promote grace, it kills it. Let me give you an example of every day in America, this is what happens. This is hilarious. Americans purchase 45,000 new automobiles, okay, and smash up 87,000. <laughs> every day, Americans eat 75 acres of pizza, and I may add, with various toppings, 53 million hot dogs, 167 million eggs, 3 million gallons of ice cream, and 3,000 tons of candy. And at the same time, we jog 17 million miles and burn 1.7 billion calories while we're at it. Now, unfortunately, the people that are eating the 75 acres of pizza aren't necessarily the same people that are doing the jogging. So that's where the problem is. So they tend not to be the same. I like this. Over $2 million a year is spent on exercise equipment. And if I may just throw out a suggestion, is this a thought? But in a few wait six months, you can buy from them for half price at a garage sale. <laughs> Isn't that true? Oh, yeah, we've been there, done that. It's like, hey, this is it. You know, it's like, here it goes, garage sale, six months from now. Don't even put it in the house. Just leave it out in the garage because we're just going to walk that little bike right out to the front. You know, with all those things. What are all those things? I mean, everything you see on TV, all those stuff. You know, uh, Thigh Master and, and, yeah, whatever, all those things, man. They're just big old piles out in garage sales. You find them all the time. Anyway. So but you, we're spending over $2 million in exercise equipment and $3,561,644 on tortilla chips and $10,400,000 on potato chips. Well, that's kind of interesting. We drink 524 million servings of Coca-Cola and they're served 2,739,726 and, and counting. 
Dunkin' Donuts. And at the same time, over 100 million American adults are, guess what, on a diet. Is that hilarious or what? So the point I'm trying to make is this. We obviously live in a land of contrast, and there's a land of variety. And if you're a kind of person that likes to run four or five miles a day and click off all this stuff, and you like to exercise and lift weights, and you watch what you eat, and you read the, the labels and all that kind of stuff, what, what you have a tendency to do if you're not careful is to become impatient and judgmental of people who aren't like you. And that destroys grace, and it doesn't promote it. So we need to be careful of that. You know what, and let me also say this, and it also is true of those who consider themselves more spiritually disciplined than other people. Let me explain. There are people that are very judgmental and very impatient with people who aren't on the same page as they are in their spiritual growth. If you don't go to this class, and if you don't go to a morning service, and if you don't go to an evening service, and if you don't go to a Wednesday night Bible study, and if you're not in a shepherd group, and if you're not in any other kind of Bible study, and you're not in an accountability group, and you're not reading your Bible every morning for 15, 20 minutes like they are, and if you're not doing all the to-do things that they list down are things that you need to do, they're not even sure if you're really a Christian or not. And it is sad, but it is true. And we need to recognize something that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day that Jesus Christ comes again. And he's got a program and he's got a schedule for you that may be different from me and different from one another. And we need to be very careful that we're not impatient and judgmental with other people because it is a process. Salvation comes at a moment in time when a person says, Lord, forgive me and I believe that Jesus Christ died for me. That's a moment, an instant in time. But growth takes place for the rest of our lives until eternity comes. And we've got to be very careful that we don't destroy a person who is in the process of growing because we don't think that they measure up to the speed that they should according to how quickly we think that we have grown. And that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. Give me an example. We have a lot of people here that are new Christians or whatever that start, you know, they come into this class and people invite them. And, and that's all good and I love it and it's, and it's great. And one of the things that, that I'm encouraged about is, is that we don't surround them with people who are judgmental and critical of them. If we have shepherd groups, we promote it. If you want to get in a small group, great. If you want to go to a Bible study, here it is. If you want to come to the baptism at the beach, then you can do that. If you want to come to a retreat, that's great. You do whatever you want to do, but we're going to make these things available to you if you think they're worthwhile that you'll be a part of. And we've got to be very careful that we don't get critical and judgmental of people who don't join in on some of these things because they just don't think that it's the right time. And I'll give you a great illustration. I talked to a gal who said, you know, we started coming to your class and we really love it. I said, great. Well, what's the problem? Well, the problem is this. The junior high meets afterwards. Now, the way we figured is if we're going to get our kids in the junior high program and we're going to come to your class, then we've got to stay like all morning here at this church. That's a problem, huh? Well, it is when, you know, we're not used to going to church at all. And that's five hours on Sunday morning. My husband's like, are you kidding me? And I just kind of smiled and said, yeah, that is a problem, huh? Now, someone else said, what's the problem? If you're really a believer and you love Jesus, you're going to be here for five hours and enjoy every minute of it. <laughs> right? 
Amen, brother. And you're coming back Sunday night. And I better see you on Wednesday. And you better join a shepherd group. In fact, here's a list of things you need to do. And man, talk about promoting grace, huh? It's like, eh, I don't know, I'm going back and watch football games Sunday morning. This is it. I, you know. and, and see what happens is we, we get so impatient and intolerant, we forget that, you know what? That's God's job. And he'll do it a lot better than you can ever do it. And we just need to leave, leave people alone. If God is calling you to do something, then you do it. And if he's calling somebody else not to do it, then don't bug them to do it with you. Because you're going to walk hand in hand with them and you can trust God. And don't become so impatient and judgmental toward other people who don't think the same way that you do. And there's also another thing that I call like exclusive sophistication, which means, you know, basically clicky type stuff. You, you follow what I'm saying? You like country western and somebody else doesn't like country western. So what do you do? You look at them and you say, what's wrong with you? You know what I mean? You like country western and they like opera. There are people that like opera. Is there anybody here that likes opera? There are a lot of people that like opera. And God bless all of you. Look at all of you. Y'all like opera. That's great. I like what one man said. He goes, you know what? I can't stand opera. And what makes it even worse is I got a lot of friends who love it. Stop and think about that. Isn't that true? We went to the Orange County Performing Arts Center for something. And I, I, I've blocked out the name of the person that we, we listened to. Well, for a little while before I fell asleep. But, and, I, and I can't remember who it was. But I blocked it out. But I was thinking, you know what? There's a certain attitude that can prevail in certain types of groups or settings. And, and you know, and stop and think about this if this isn't true. So we go to this deal. And we were asked by a business associate to go. So we thought that would go. It would never be something that I would ever look in the paper and went, oh, boy, look who's playing at the Orange County Performing Arts Center. So we get there. And everyone has, like, tuxes on and mink stoles. And they got little you know, little champagne little things with these little foo-foo kind of glasses, you know. They weren't mugs, so I didn't know what they were. <laughs> no, just kidding. So they got these little glasses, you know, and they're all walking around, and they kind of like, it's kind of like that kind of a day, you know. It's kind of like being a bunch, a whole bunch of people that, you know what, they, like, they never pass gas in their life, you know what I mean? <laughs> Those kind of people. Never happen, never will. They just don't do it. And, and, uh, and, and you just feel like, like, we don't belong here. You know, we just don't fit in. And they really didn't go out of their way to make you feel like, well, that's okay, we can teach you. <laughs> you know, they just kind of like, they look at you like saying, what are they doing here, you know? And, and you don't show up to a place like that in cowboy boots and country western type stuff, right? So it was like, it was just one of those experiences that you begin to realize, you know, when we have that attitude that people don't like what we like or they're outside of our little group, well, it doesn't promote grace. So we need to be very careful about that as well. And then the last thing is this, and that has to do with pride. It's like, you know what? I'm the kind of person that I worked my way up from nothing, and I kind of strapped on my boots, and I did my thing, and, I, you know, and, and there's an attitude that comes with all that. You know what? No one ever gave me anything, and I like it that way because I don't feel like I owe anybody anything. And I can relate to that because that's my background. No one ever did anything for me. Anything that I ever had, I had to work my way to get he had to work my way through school. Had to work our way in our, in our early years in our marriage. Anything that we ever had and, and had, we had to work for it, and we worked hard to get it. And there's a certain presence of pride that comes with that kind of mentality that says, you know what, I don't need anybody because we can manage quite well on our own. 
And if that's the kind of attitude that you have, then you're going to be a person who tends to resist grace. Because God wants to give you something, and you say, I don't want anything for free. I'll work my way for whatever it is that you want to give me. Don't hand me anything. And so we'll resist. And we've got to be real careful. And so what I want to do is, as we go through this, is, is look at, we look through this series, and I want to try to identify just one thing today. That's all we're going to do. Just one reason why people resist God's grace and the grace of other people. Just one reason. When we first started the series, we saw that, you know, there, there was basically three that we looked at. One was that there's genuine confusion. People don't understand grace because there's nothing like it in the world. Everything you get, you earn. No one gives you anything for nothing. There's always some strings attached. If you get something from somebody, they expect something in return. And you've got to work your way, and that's the way that it is. So there's some confusion. So when the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, Hail Mary, you're full of God's grace. God has chosen you. And she said, how, how can that be? He said, because God chose you. That's how it can be. But I'm a virgin. Well, that's why he chose you too, because you fit the qualification. So there you go. And she's like, but I don't understand. I'm confused. Oh, that's okay. Well, we're going to explain it to you. And as we've gone through, we saw that, you know what? God just does what he wants to do because he wants to do it. And there ain't any other reason for it besides he just wants to do it. And the second thing we saw was that, you know what? Sometimes not only are we just genuinely confused, but we have this gigantic sense of pride that gets in our way from accepting grace by God. And we saw that in the life of Peter, who Jesus said to him one day, hey, you know what? Come on over here. I'm going to wash your feet. And Peter said, no, you're not. You're not washing my feet. And Jesus said, yeah, I'm going to wash your feet. Now get over here, let me wash them. And he said, no. And he got in a big argument with them in front of everybody else saying, you're not washing my feet. You're not washing my feet. You're not doing anything for me. I can take care of myself. And yet later, through a series of events, God began to break him in that area of his life. And, and he would not give up. He wouldn't let up until Peter finally gave up. And it was Peter who wrote, wrote the words, you know what? I think we all need to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. And that God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So we need to be humble and humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, that he will be the one who exalts you and he'll do it in the proper time. See, Peter learned the lesson. But there's a third reason that we resist grace, and it's found in the life of Moses. And if you've got your Bible, turn back to Exodus chapter 3. It's fascinating when you look at Moses' life and see that here's a man who God said, hey, you know what? I got a plan. I got an idea. I want to share something with you. I want you to be involved and be a part of it. And uh, in Exodus chapter 3, the little backdrop of it was, if you know anything about the life of Moses, Moses was adopted. He was uh, the adopted son of Pharaoh and, uh, and his wife. He was raised in the courts of Egypt. He was a powerful man. He was an articulate man. He had, a, uh, he had just, you know, battlefield uh, medals all over the place. Everywhere that he went, he was educated in the things of Egypt, and he was next in line to become Pharaoh. And he had made it to the top, and he had worked his way up there. And he was, he was a special person in the Egyptian structure. And in fact, everywhere that he'd go, if you want to see a picture, a word picture, but he'd ride his chariot, and there would be people that would go out in front of him, and as they came across, people said, bow down. Bow down, and they would bow down as the chariot came, and Moses would be riding on the chariot. And that was the picture of who he was and, and the level that he had attained and all that had taken place. He was powerful, he was articulate, he was a spokesperson, he was educated, he was next in line for, to, to become Pharaoh, and this was all that was going on. And then one day, one day God comes to him and says, Hey, I got a job for you. 
You're going to go ahead and you're going to lead all these people, all three million of them, you're going to lead them out of Egypt, and you're going to take them out of this land, to the land that I'm going to tell you about, and you're going to be the leader of all these people. So Moses thinking, you know what? That's a natural. I can understand why God would choose me, because I'm going to be a leader. I, would be, I was going to be a leader in Egypt. I can understand why I'd be a leader of all of Israel, and so I can understand why God would choose me. And so God had planted this thought of how he was going to use Moses to lead all these people away. Well, one day Moses is walking around, and he sees that there's an Egyptian and Israelite, and they had gotten into a fight. And Moses, knowing that he's now the leader of Israel, begins to defend his fellow brother Israelite, and he goes over to him, and he tries to break it up, and it doesn't break up, and so he kills the Egyptian. Not waiting for God's timing and not waiting for the way that God does things, but we need to understand it's not by power nor by might, but by God's Spirit is the way He leads His people. And yet Moses had this in his mind that, you know what, I'm going to be a physical tough leader. And so I'm going to prove it and demonstrate it. And so he kills this Egyptian. And then he takes him and he hides him out in the sand because now he's afraid. And he buries him so that no one will know what's going on. And the next day he's going to Israelite brothers and says, hey, you know what, God's chosen me to lead you. And they're like, yeah, well, you know what? We're not sure we want you to lead us. In fact, if we don't go with you, you're going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And all of a sudden, Moses realizes that he's been caught. And then Pharaoh finds out about it. He has no use for him, and he goes after him, and Moses runs away, and he fears for his life. And you know what? This amazing thing is that Moses was on the brink of the greatest accomplishment that he would be a part of that God had chosen him to lead Israel out of Egypt. He had been picked and chosen by God to do it, and he tried to do it in a way that God wasn't pleased with, and the results were disastrous. And the next thing you know, he runs away and he hides, and he's out in the desert thinking that, you know what? I just blew the biggest chance of my life. I just got drafted in the first round, and I was, missed, I was late to training camp, and they cut me. I blew it. So for the next 40 years, Moses' prison is this desert where what he's doing for his father-in-law is he's just, he's just shepherding sheep. And he's thinking the whole time, for 40 years, you know he's beating himself to death, thinking, you know what? I was going to be the leader of Israel. God chose me, and I blew it. And now look what I'm doing. I'm out here with sheep. This is horrendous. This is a bummer. What am I going to do? And that's all the backdrop here of chapter 3. Verse 1 says, Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet it wasn't consumed. So Moses said, I, I must see it and turn aside and see what's going on. This is a marvelous sight. Why the bush isn't burning up? Now when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. For 40 years, Moses never heard God's voice. And out of the blue, one day, God says, the timing is right. Hey, Moses, Moses, and he hears the voice that he had heard 40 years ago. And for 40 years, he had been beating himself to death because he had blown his greatest opportunity. And now he hears God's voice once again. And Moses says, here I am. Let me ask you something. Do you know what's in that voice? Grace. Grace. 
You know what's in that voice. It's the grace of God. I don't know, maybe some of us haven't heard God's voice in a long time. You blew it. I know people sitting in prison that have blown it and they haven't heard God's voice in a long time. I know people sitting in bars all over our country sitting there lonely and drowning their sorrows because they blew it and they haven't heard the voice of God in a long time, if ever. I know people that sit in churches and come every week trying to listen to hear God's voice again and they haven't heard it. Not through me, not through any other pastor. They just haven't heard God's voice. <clears throat> and they're sitting there and they're beating themselves up because they've blown it at some point in their life. And they feel like, you know what, they're useless and there's nothing that God can do with them anymore. They can't be used anymore by God because they've blown their opportunity. There are many of us who sit there wondering if we'll ever hear the voice of God again. And if you're in that position, you understand what Moses has gone through for 40 years, wondering if he'd ever hear God's voice again. And that day comes where he hears, Moses, Moses, it's time. Now let me ask you something. If you're one of those people who haven't heard God's voice in a long time and you're longing to hear it again, when you finally hear it, how are you going to respond to it? Because that's God's grace. Now I'm looking at Moses and I'm thinking, as soon as Moses hears God's voice, he'll be like, Yes! Here I am. What's going on? What are, we, what are we doing? Where are we going? What do you want me to do this time? I learned my lesson. What are we going to do? So God says, hey, remember the plan that we had? Well, here's the deal. You're going to go and get my people and set them free. And so how does Moses respond? Look at verse 11. So God says, go. Moses says, but, what, what, but wait a minute, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? I mean, who am I? God is going back to this guy and saying, okay, I want you to go and do this. And Moses has three excuses why he's going to resist God's grace. The first one is this, who am I? And you know what God would say? He'd say, you're nobody. You're nothing but I'm picking you anyway. That's what grace is all about. And so he picks Moses and says, but you're nobody, but let me tell you something. With me, it's a guaranteed thing. And he goes on and he tells him and he reminds me, he says, you know what, certainly I'll be with you and I'm going to give you a sign and you're going to bring the people out and you're going to worship me on this mountain, but I'm going to be with you and so it's a guaranteed thing. You're nobody, but I'm somebody and with me and you together, we're going to accomplish what we have to accomplish. And so you think with Moses would go, great, all right, I'm ready to go, let's go. He goes on again. And if you look down a little further, he says in uh, verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, after God just explains to him how you can trust him, Moses answered and said, but what if? What if they don't believe me or listen to what I have to say? First thing he does to resist God's grace is say, who am I? I'm nobody. The second thing he does, he goes, but, but, but what if? What if excuse? We've all used that. Hey, you know what? God's calling you to do something. You hear his voice. You hear the conviction of the Spirit of God in your heart. And God's telling you, go and do this or do that. And you're going like this. But, but, but what if? What if people think I'm nuts? What if people don't believe that, you know, you're really leading me? What if? What if? What if? What if? What if? A million excuses. And God's saying, with me, there are no what ifs. If I tell you, I'm telling you. 
There's no what ifs. You can trust me. Then the third excuse he comes up with, he says, look, in verse 10, he says, Lord, you know what, though? But you know that I've never been eloquent. Never in past times and, and never now. And I'm slow of speech and I'm slow of tongue. And I, the third excuse was, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. Now, Moses forgot a little bit about his life because Acts chapter 7 tells us that he was powerful and he was articulate and he was educated in all of Egypt. So all of a sudden, Moses, after 40 years of out in the desert just talking to sheep, realizes, you know what, he's not the most articulate person in the world. He's got, only thing he's got down is bad, bad, you too. You know, and that's about the conversation that's been taking place. So he goes through these three things and they're all excuses. And you know what God says is, wait a minute, I'm offering you my grace. And you're resisting it every turn that we take. You need to learn to accept it. See, you aren't anybody, and that's true. So we got that first thing out of the way, but I'm somebody. And you know what? And the other thing is, there are no what-ifs, because I'm telling you what's going to happen, and he guaranteed it all along the process. And the last thing he said was, oh, you don't think you can? Well, that's good. Now I can finally use you, because now you're going to learn to trust me instead of trusting in yourself. So for 40 years, God took him through this process of breaking him down to the point where now he didn't have anywhere else to go but to turn to God and say, okay, I'm nobody, you're somebody. I can't, but you can. There are no what ifs because you're already telling me what's going to happen. So I guess it's time that we just move on and go ahead and do something. Are you in a position that's similar to that? God is reaching out in his grace and he's saying, you know what? You think you've blown it you can never be used again? Don't you understand grace by now? You've been studying it for three months. Don't you understand that, yeah, you're nobody, but I'm somebody? That you can't, but I can? With God, all things are possible? Don't you understand that, you know, I'm just reaching out to you, and it's just all you've got to do is just learn to accept it and to look at it? See, the problem with all of this is, is that we resist grace, and listen to this carefully. We resist grace when we haven't properly dealt with our guilt and our shame. You follow that? We resist grace when we haven't properly dealt with our guilt and our shame. We've blown it, but instead of thanking God for his forgiveness, instead of making it right, we sit and we feel sorry for ourselves, and we think that God can never use us again, that somehow we're disqualified for the rest of our life. May I suggest this? If you're feeling sorry for yourself, Remember what God did with Moses, who blew it, who felt sorry for himself. And as a result of his guilt and shame, he was resisting God's grace. But God's grace can penetrate even that. You know, we sang that song, Amazing Grace. You know, Amazing Grace was written by a man named, a man named John Newton. And John Newton was one of the most vicious and cruel slave traders that this world had ever known. And as he came to understand this vicious heart that he had and he came to understand this wicked nature and how he was just rebelling against God and separated from God, he recognized that he needed forgiveness of God. And he got down on his knees one day and said, Lord, I need you to forgive me for what I am. And I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And I believe that he rose from the dead demonstrating that he could forgive my sin and I need him to come into my life. And at that moment in time when he surrendered his will, God said that you have now received my son. You've become a child of mine. And so a little bit later, he sat down and he wrote those words of amazing grace because here was a man who, if he wanted to feel guilt and shame about his past, he could have done so for the rest of his life and into eternity. But he recognized how amazing God's grace was. 
that God's grace could save a wretch like me. I was once lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I can see. And you see how powerful God's grace is when we realize and understand it and accept it and embrace it instead of resisting it? God wants to forgive you. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He's gracious, He's faithful, He's righteous, and He'll forgive us all of that and cleanse us from it all. That if we just believe that, then we can move on and be used by God. Stop resisting God's grace because it's a lie from the pit of hell. I like what C.S. Lewis said about guilt. He says, you know what? Remember what the Bible says, if our heart condemns us, God is stronger than our heart. This is the feeling of being or not being forgiven and loved is not what matters. It's not about feelings. It's about what God has to say is true. And if you hear the voice that's humming in your ear saying, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you have no use to God. If you hear that voice, it's not the voice of heaven, but it's a voice from the pit of hell. And it's Satan himself who wants to disqualify you and diminish what God can do in your life while you're still here on earth. The Bible says that God is faithful. We need to believe it. We need to trust him. You need to just ask him for forgiveness. You need to make it right. You need to move on. You need to stop resisting his grace because the hum of the devil in your ear is a lie from the pit of hell that says you can't be used. You're nobody. God has no use for you. Look how you failed him. You continue to fail him. He's forgiven you a couple of times. He's not going to keep forgiving you. And the Bible says that he will forgive you over and over 70 times seven. Now, there isn't anybody that I know gets up today and says, today's the day I want to fail. There's any guy that enters a game and says, today's the day I want to fumble three times. The day I want to throw a couple of interceptions. The day that I want to mess up my life. Today's the day I want to screw up my marriage. That I want to start cheating and lying in business. That I want to, you know, do this or that. There's anybody I know that gets up that day and says, this is the day I'm going to do that. But you know what? Some days those things happen. And the wonderful thing about God's grace is that he already knows that in advance. And all he's looking for is someone to say, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? And then you can deal with you again. He can use you again. And if you doubt me, let me show you something. Turn with me to Judges chapter 16 and we'll close on this. Judges chapter 16. Here's the culmination of a guy who had so much promise and just made so many stupid mistakes. His name was Samson. He was my man. I call him, he's my, my he-man with a she-weakness. He just liked the ladies, man. He just could not get away from the ladies. He just had an eye for the ladies, and he kept falling in that area. And God had called him for the purpose of delivering Israel from the Philistines, and for 20 years he was on target. He did his job. He was doing what he was supposed to do. And then he ran across Delilah, and the rest is history. He sold out. He compromised, and he began to play games with what God had called him to do. And eventually what happened was he told the secret, supposedly, of his strength, which was in his hair, but it was really in his trust for God and his belief in God. So they cut off his hair and he lost all of his strength and the Spirit of God left him and he was just useless. And so there he was in prison with this bald head and he was useless and he had failed like Moses failed and he knew that he wasn't worthy of anything that God would ever do in his life and he had screwed up big time, he had made a big mistake and he, now he's sitting in prison. And so one day he just said, God, I messed up. I messed up big time. And he says in verse 28, Oh, Lord God, please remember me and strengthen me just this one time, oh God, that I may avenge or may at once be avenged to the Philistines who took out my eyes. So God, I don't expect anything, but if you'll just remember me this one time, I'd sure like to go down swinging for you. I made a mess of my life. And as God began to deal with his life, what happened was all of a sudden, his hair started to grow back. 
and they didn't even realize his hair was growing back. And every day he woke up and there was a little more fuzz on his head. You know, he was like some of our sons, you know, the day they get their first hair under their arm. Hey! You know, he didn't say anything. You know, I run around going looking in the mirror. I could just see Samson looking in the mirror. Oh, man. Look at He couldn't tell me, but I'm getting my hair back. God's answering my prayers. Look at this. And the hair started growing. And he just said to God, okay, God, just this one last time. One last time. And you know what? God answered his prayer. What could happen? Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. He braced himself against it, the one with his right hand and the other with his left hand. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all of his might so that the house fell on the, <clears throat> fell on the lords and all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed his entire life. God's grace. And that's that same grace that saves us. And it's the same grace that sustains us. Now I want you to understand something, because this is where we run into the problem. It's application time. Number one, let's learn something from Moses. That's a real simple lesson, and that is this. You know what? We need to deal with our guilt. We need to deal with our shame, because those twin killers will kill grace. Guilt and shame will kill God's grace every time. We need to deal with our guilt. We need to deal with our shame. And if there's something in your life that you're guilty of because you're wrong before God, then God says, confess it. If you confess it, I'll forgive you. I'm faithful, I'm just, you're not, and you know it. You need to understand that. Confess it. Ask God to forgive you. And then when he deals with that area of your life, he removes the guilt as well. And you're put in a position where God can use you again. And from the life of Samson, we learn this. Never give up on God. Because once God forgives us, He can put us back in a position where He can use us again for His purposes and for His glory. And we just unload all our expectations. God, I don't expect anything. Whatever you want to do is fine with me because that's what grace is all about. I don't demand it. I don't expect it. But if you want to do it, then praise God, that's fine with me. Application, simple. I don't know how anybody can miss this, so listen up. The next time that God or someone else wants to extend their grace to you. Let me make a suggestion. You just reach out your hand, put a smile on your face, you accept it, and you say thank you. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this opportunity again to study your word. Thank you for helping us to understand that grace is not only amazing, but it requires that we accept it as well. God, I know there are many of us who are very proud people and don't want anything from you or anybody else. But we also know that you're opposed to the proud, that you give grace to the humble. God, we just pray that you will do whatever it takes in our life to humble us to the position of Moses where we recognize that we're just human beings, that we make mistakes, we thank you for your grace that you can forgive us, that you can cleanse us from it, that you can remove the guilt and the shame, that you can put us in a position where you can use us again. We just thank you for the life of Samson who realized that there are no expectations, that we just come to you with our hands empty and not with clenched fists. We don't hold on to the things that you've given us and we certainly don't want to close our fists to that which you want to give us in the future, but that we just come with our hands open so you can put in and take out as you choose.
And God, we just thank you that we're never beyond repair. That no matter how many mistakes that we've made, that your grace is sufficient in our time of weakness. And we just thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.